But today is the last in the series of what we were calling Life Verses when we had these different speakers get up and talk about their favorite verses and their favorite passages and scriptures and why it meant a lot to them. And I have to admit, I had that all chambered and I was ready to go on Sunday. Uh, but I couldn't do it. I've never had an audible uh, moment where, where, where the Lord spoke to me. Um, but I do think that the Lord did put on my heart. Uh, don't go there. We have had a very difficult year. And difficult years call for, my time, call for a time of lament. Call for a time of remembrance. And we need to acknowledge that, I think. So I appreciate Gary's uh, bringing forth that video and getting us all excited and uh, positive. I'm going to bring us right back down. Sorry, it wasn't my intent. <clears throat> but how many families were s separated from their loved ones this Christmas? And I got to tell you, Christmas via uh, FaceTime or via Zoom, it's just not the same thing. I've heard so many people say, I am so tired of this, we should make that into a t-shirt. We've had job losses. We have had family members get sick. We've had some deaths. Many, many sleepless nights of worry. Worry for family, worry about jobs, worry about businesses. Isolation, depression. You don't think it's bad? Try to get an appointment with, with, with a psychiatrist or a therapist. Can't. They're booked. Yes, I'll be glad when 2020 is in the rearview mirror. But the repercussions of all this are going to be lasting quite, quite a long time. So the message today is out of the book of Psalms. And I know, don't start groaning, but Psalms is a book that actually has some good nuggets in it. It's universally accepted, not just by the Jews, but even Muslims quote from Psalms, Orientals quote from them. We as Christians, I just don't think we've developed much of an appetite for them. Many of us know a few of the Psalms, the 23rd Psalm, maybe Psalm 1. I remember in elementary school learning and memorizing Psalm 100 for a Christmas program, I can still quote it to this day. Psalms about God extolling greatness in his care for man. But we need to know this one too, Psalms 73. Now this is not a Psalm of David. It's a Psalm written by a man named Asaph. David did not write all the Psalms. He wrote most of them, a good many of them, but not all of them. And this psalm's pretty timely, almost as timely as today's paper. For it describes how we've all thought at one time or another. His problem was as old as the human race. He looked around at all the unbelievers and the wicked people out there, and he said, God, they're not getting their just dues. God isn't acting fairly. He isn't taking care of his own. Why me? Why not them? And many would have to agree on this point. Let's dive into the scripture. Verse 3, he says, For I envied the arrogant 
when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They seem to live long and die easy. They're the kind of people in today's vernacular that flaunt the rules. They don't wear masks. They go into all the public gatherings. They don't wash their hands. And yet I'm the one that gets sick. What's fair about that? He would say things like, my grandmother never touched a drop of alcohol. She never uttered a swear word. God, why are you giving her cancer? Why is she being stricken? Why not them? Verse 4, he goes on. For they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Job also questioned in that book why the wicked always seem to prosper and be immune from strife. I can't read a weekly e-blast from this congregation that doesn't describe one of our wonderful godly members getting diagnosed with cancer, getting laid off from work. Your heart aches for them. Yet it seems like the wicked, the non-believers, they're healthy. They're enjoying life. They're playing golf, going skiing, taking weekends and going fishing. You seldom hear them having long, lingering deaths, unless it's from cancer, from smoking too much, or sclerosis of the liver from drinking. This first started bothering me when I was in high school, and, and my grandfather, who I absolutely adored, a barrel-chested man, owned a paint and body shop, stricken with cancer, and I saw the last 10 years of his life dwindle down in painful, hurtful death. Or look at this congregation. One of the most godly shepherds I've ever known, Kurt Connor. Or what about some of our ministers in this body? Eddie Plemons, Josh Patrick, warriors for the Lord. Why take them? Two women outside my wife that had the most impact on me, my mother. And sweet, precious Jean Wagner, who I got the privilege to know and spend time with for 15 years, who became a member of this church at age two, 81 years in this church. To watch those two women who I love so much dwindle down through dementia. And I thought, God, <sighs> why them? What's the use of prayer? Unbelievers don't pray, and yet they seem to be doing great. You know, I prayed every day for my first child. Every single day I would go into that crib and pray over him, lay hands on him, pray for his future that God would keep him safe. And yet one day after four and a half months, lay down for a nap and he didn't wake up. SIDS it was called. I'd never heard of that. And I would rage out at God, what's the point of prayer? Is this what prayer gets you? Is this the result of that? Then why in the world do you bother? Is this how you treat your followers? You know, I have no idea why bad things happen to good people. Let me say as a sidebar, you don't either. 
So please don't try to explain it. I love this quote by Tim Keller. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Too many people try to go to those that are hurting and try to suave and ease the pain and end up causing a little bit more harm than good. I love Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. God didn't cause it. He doesn't like it. He's our daddy. When we hurt, he hurts. And sorry to chase a rabbit here, but this is a pet peeve of mine. Look at Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those that rejoice and mourn with those that mourn. We got the first part down. We can rejoice with those that rejoice, but we don't seem to get the second part. It doesn't say try to cheer up those that mourn. It doesn't say give some kind of platitude to those that mourn. There's not anything you can say to someone who's suffering a loss that's going to be an epiphany that's going to automatically just change their outlook. God, God in the form of Jesus showed up when somebody lost a loved one and what does he say? Does he give them a platitude? Does he say, it's okay Mary and Martha, God just needed another angel? It says Jesus wept. I encourage you when you go to anybody that's grieving, whether it be a loss of a child or a spouse, loved one, loss of a job, if they're hurting, well, I have to say something. No, you don't. The best four words I could give you, the best advice, go to someone that's hurting, show up and shut up. Show up, I'm there for you, and then be quiet. Mourn with them, grieve with them, love them by keeping your mouth shut. Asaph had problem with this too. He looked around and saw those non-believers out there. He said, man, they seldom have trouble. Look at verse 5. They are free from burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Others around me seem to seldom seem to have difficulties. I still remember in Atlanta, my first uh, youth ministry gig, I was helping out a friend, a fellow youth minister, and he said, can you cover for me to do this speaking engagement? It was the other side of town. I didn't want to do it, but I did. Had to leave early because you never know about Atlanta traffic. And here I go to help out a friend to cover and speaking at this engagement and halfway across Atlanta, here are these blue lights in my rearview mirror. What in the world? I look down immediately like you do. 41. Cop pulls me over, asks for the license and registration, which I give him. He dutifully walks back and starts jotting stuff down on his little pad, filling out a citation. And he came back, said, officer, was I speeding? I thought the speed limit was 40. Normally it's 40, but you just passed through a school zone. 
from 2.30 to 4.30, it's 20 miles an hour. You're going 23 miles an hour over the speed limit. I looked down, it was 4.45. He said, when you pass me, it's 4.26. Here's your citation. Here's your stuff back. Are you kidding me? All these cars zipping around me going 90 to nothing? Why didn't you get one of them? I bet they don't even go to church. Those non-believers around me, they don't have their houses broke into. Their hubcaps aren't stolen. J.D. Rockefeller never had these problems. No, Christians go on trips. They don't seem to have difficulties. This isn't fair. That's one thing I did hopefully do right, trying to teach my children. I would tell them all the time, who promised you fair? The world is not fair. And I've got better things to do when I slice cake than put it on some kind of atomic scale to figure out which one might have a micron more icing on top of it. I'm giving you cake. Stop comparing it to your siblings. Just eat it. And believe you me, when it comes to God, I don't want fair. Oh, I do not want fair. I love the saying, grace seems so unfair until you need a little. No, if I got fair on God's scale, I wouldn't be standing here right now, I assure you. But Asaph, he was looking around him and he saw those non-believers around him seem to be pretty fat and happy. They don't need anything. I love the King James Version of verse 7. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than their hearts could wish. In ancient times, fatness was associated with wealth. Today it means you can't afford a health spa or maybe a personal trainer. Some around him seem to have more money than him. That happens today. You look around and why is it the neighbors seem to have a boat and I can't afford one? Well, maybe if you'd stop tithing and giving to the Lord, you could afford a riding lawnmower instead of a push mower. Maybe. Like Job, he too questioned, like many of us Christians when we can't make ends meet. But if we bless God when we prosper, how can we then turn around and curse God when we don't prosper? Asaph goes on in verse 9 and 11 to say how they defy God. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? They openly mock God. Sounds like the God is dead attitude, doesn't it? Remember decades ago, Sinclair Lewis did that famous speech in Cincinnati, who during this speech, he said, if there is a God, there isn't. But there is a God, let him strike me down in the next 15 minutes. And after the speech, he was kidding with the reporters, boasting about his health after the speech. The next day, a New York Times article, which you wouldn't see today, but a New York Times editorial said that it reminded him, the author, and I wished I would have kept his name, reminded him of a story about two ants talking on a train track in the middle of the New Mexico desert. 
One aunt was telling the other aunt about the president of the Santa Fe Railroad that they were standing on, about how he turned that railroad around and how he lives in Chicago. And the other aunt says, I don't believe it. I don't believe there is such a person. If there is such a person, let him come here and squash me within the next hour. And the first aunt responds in classic form. He said, the president of the Santa Fe Railroad has better things to do than come to the middle of New Mexico to squash a couple of ants. It is obvious that around him to Asaph, the unbelievers don't seem to have much trouble in this world. But the godly do. He looks, look in verses 12 and 13. This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing their wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocent. When I first began in ministry, I'm embarrassed to say that uh, I had all the answers. Any of those pressing questions of the day, I could tell you the answer to without equivocation. Should I dance? Should I listen to instrumental music? Should I drink alcohol? Should I go mix swimming? I knew it all. Do I need to be at church on Sunday night and Wednesday nights? Absolutely. And I could quote Hebrews 10, 25. Don't forsake the assembly. I was so obnoxious, I, could mem I had memorized the Webster's Dictionary definition of lasciviousness. Yet, surprise, people didn't listen to me when I told them my opinion or gave them these answers. In my mind, I wondered why God didn't burn down the houses of all those wicked people out there. If God was fair, he would send hail on that guy's farm to those crops, but to Christians' homes, he would send nice, warm, soft raindrops. Because they're the ones that are in church, like they're supposed to be. Quite often, the opposite happened. I vividly remember in Oklahoma, when I was interning for a church, a godly Christian man, deacon in the church, house wiped out by one of those tornadoes that they have so many of in Oklahoma. Unbeliever right next door to him, house wasn't touched. Really? Think of this problem really caused Asaph a lot of difficulty. In fact, Asaph nearly lost his faith over all this. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. He was saying, if this is the way you treat your followers, God, I want no part of it. What part of any of this is fair? This is not just a case of him having a bad day. This had been bothering him for a long time. Plus, a lot of his colleagues, a lot of his friends, a lot of his fellow believers, they'd given up. They'd turned back, and they'd gone back to the ways of the world. Look at verse 10. Therefore, their people turn from them, turn to them the ways of sin, and drink up waters in abundance. You've probably all known people like this. They conclude, I just can't make it. 
as this Christian stuff, can't make enough money, and they go back to the world, and quite often they succeed. They cheat at school. They cheat at work. And they get away with it. Others are being lazy on the job or you get, the teacher gives you a group assignment to do this project or your paper. You work hard and they are lazy, but they end up getting the same grade. They get the same paycheck as you. I used to pray for a foreman to come around the corner when a fellow warehouse worker was asleep literally on the job, but he never got caught. And every Friday we would get the same check no, that's not fair. There's enough truth and honesty is the best policy to usually work out that way, but in dollars and cents or grades and in the short term, it's not always true. His faith and goodness was nearly lost. Again in first, verse 13, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. You know, we live in an age of gadgets, of, of knickknacks, of things, of possessions, materialism. And like Asaph, sometimes as we look around and start comparing to what other non-believers have, we start getting a little jealous. And we start wondering, why can't I have some of those things? You don't think materialism affects you? Let's take a little test. Take just a moment, pause, and right now think of the top one, two, or three problems that you have right now. Most pressing, urgent needs in your life. Okay? Now, tomorrow morning, if I was to transfer into your bank account a million dollars, wouldn't it make all those problems just kind of go away? Sounds like um, pretty modern, current thoughts that ASAP was putting forward. Not something written 30 centuries ago. During the Kefauver investigations back in the 50s, this one when they first revealed there really was a mafia, gangsters were questioned. Now most of these gangsters took the Fifth Amendment. But during the trial, their wealth was exposed to the world for the first time. I had to write a paper on this. It's fascinating. One gangster in Chicago had his hand in every filthy pie there was from extortion to prostitution to murder. He lived in a house that cost over a million dollars. Now this is 1950 when the average annual income was $4,237. So today, it'd be about a $15, $20 million home. This home, mansion, had 12 bathrooms in it. One bathroom had over, was over 1,800 square feet, which was bigger than my first home, much bigger than my first home. Inside that bathroom, he had a tub made out of solid Mexican topaz. In today's money, it would be valued at over a quarter million dollars for the tub. And I kept reading about all the opulence and all the extravagances this guy had. And where, the way my mind worked, you know what I thought? 
wonder what kind of toilet paper that old boy uses. Some might say, my goodness, hasn't the Lord blessed that man? No. No. In spiritual wealth, he couldn't afford a sleeping bag in a city dump. That's the lesson from Asaph. The wealth of the soul doesn't correspond with finances. And this is something we need to teach our children. Don't tell them to go to college simply so they can make more money. Too many of us spell success with dollar signs in place of the S's. They need to be taught that no matter what the job, work hard, work as unto the Lord. Work to the best of your ability. Don't worry about the money. God's got your back. Asaph would not dare speak of this to his children. And I respect that so much about that man. Look at verse 15. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. Too often parents overshare and voice criticism and petty grievances right in front of the kids. They'll go home from church on Sundays and have roasted preacher. They'll have fried Sunday school teacher and skewered youth minister. I admire Asaph for recognizing that that kind of talk could damage the faith of his children. And he kept that behind closed doors. Now Asaph offers a resolution to all this problem. Verses 1 to 16 kind of gives an overview of the problem, but verses 17 and forward give a bird's eye view of how it resolves for him. The first thing Asaph realized is, number one, he saw the end of the wicked. He looked at the big picture. Look at verses 16 and 17. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. You see, he had been so focused and consumed with the short-term issue. He was looking at the right now. They seemed to be doing well. But what about later? Their end was obvious. They were lost. Look at verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. All their success was temporary. They had treasures on earth, but not in heaven. And the the earthly treasures, they can be gone in an instant. What good is money when you're looking in the face of eternity? What good did money do to the rich man? Or what harm did the lack of money do for Lazarus? The rich, they were always fearful of losing their money. Proverbs 23, 5, cast but a glance at riches and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off into the sky like an eagle. We all know too well how quickly financial reserves can evaporate. I don't know about y'all, but each time I ever got a financial cushion, some calamity would beset us. Loss of a child, loss of a job, a month-long stay in the hospital, gone Look at verse 19. Asaph continuing, how suddenly are they destroyed? 
completely swept away by terrors. You seldom see this side. The nights of despair, worrying about getting caught, worrying if your business partner is going to find out, worrying about an audit, worrying about if anybody saw. In September 1966, Christianity Today, a cited survey was cited of call girls making $35,000 a year or more. And the survey was trying to ascertain whether these girls were happy. After all, this was the 1960s. Free love was rampant. And the new morality suggested, hey, you can be free from infection, free from detection, and free from conception. Let your freak flag fly. But so many of those girls were either on drugs or were in jail or had killed themselves by the end of the survey. It was no longer valid. Satan loves us to see the glamour and the pleasure side, but he doesn't always want you to see the flip side of pain and anguish and heartache. Asaph also recognized the value, finally, of his own spiritual life. He realized, amazingly, he did possess great wealth, spiritual wealth. He starts off by saying in verse 22, I was senseless and arrogant. I was a brute beast before you. I can relate to that part where you just want to rage against God. At the loss of our child, I literally did not speak to God for over a year. How much I've repented of that. The one person in the universe that loves me most, the one person in the universe that cared for me the most and could help me the most, and I refused to talk to him. Asaph went through that too, but he finally realized that God was there for him. He had God's continued presence. Look at verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Do you catch that imagery? You hold me by my right hand. Like a child watch, walking with his parent hand in hand. The confidence, the security, the comfort, walking with God with complete ease, holding your daddy's right hand. He realized that this relationship would guide him at every crossroad in his life. Look at verse 24. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. He finally woke up. He realized that God was his constant companion and guide. He had God's love and care. His directing finger is a priceless treasure worth more than all the world. And like Peter said to Jesus when he asked, are you also going to leave me too? Lord, to whom would we go? Suffer through it, you'll come out stronger. In conclusion, verses 25 through 28, 
It sounds a lot like the 23rd Psalm, and I love the way he closes. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Keith, you want to bring your team up? Looking around, he finally woke up. He saw that God was always there. He always had been there. And he always would be there. May we see Asaph's problem, realize the answer, may it be a blessing to us. And let me close with one last scripture, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him. You know, in my opinion, the hardest prayer in the world to pray is the prayer that goes, Lord, your will be done. That is a hard prayer to pray. Because what if Lord's will is for you not to get the job? What if the Lord's will is that, that person not be healed? Sometimes the hardest thing is to put yourself into God's hands and give up control like we ever had it and let God drive the car. I've asked Keith, if he would, to uh, close us off with a song. Hopefully you're familiar with it, but the theme fits, uh, fits the, the lesson perfectly. Michael W. Smith's song, Sovereign Over Us. If you would, please.